second chapter of the book of Jeremiah is the place of the text. It's found in the ninth verse. So it's chapter 2 of Jeremiah, beginning verse 9. We'll read through verses 13. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, with your sons, sons, I will contend. For cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see, send to Kedar, and observe closely, and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when there were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns that can hold no water, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The prophet Jeremiah allows us to listen in as God addresses heaven. And he calls on heaven to be appalled. The word in the Hebrew means, let your hair stand on end. And to be very desolate, it means in the Hebrew to be speechless. So God is calling on heaven to witness something that is of such magnitude it would make their hair stand on end. And He's calling on heaven to witness something that is so unbelievable. When they witness it, it makes them speechless. They can't even talk in the awareness of it. Um, God often has called heaven to bear witness to something. And in order to really put this terrible thing that he's talking about here into perspective, it's important for us to remember that heaven has been witness to everything. Heaven was witness the day that Adam and Eve sinned, so that heaven witnessed the fall of man. And heaven witnessed as God destroyed the world through the flood. And heaven was witness when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, when fire and brimstone rained down upon those wicked cities. And heaven was witness when Jerusalem was destroyed and when Jesus was crucified. As a matter of fact, heaven has been the silent witness to every crime and every war, and every atrocity that man has perpetrated on himself. And yet God says, when you witness this thing, it will make your hair stand on end. When you witness this, it will make you speechless. Now what is such a terrible thing that it surprises heaven and astounds heaven and makes heaven's hair stand on end? Well, he tells us the crime in verse 13. My people have turned from me to idols, to God, which are no gods. 
when you read that, it kind of brings you up short because that's a crime of which most of us are guilty every day. I suppose there's not anybody here who could, who could say honestly, I've never ever really turned from God to other gods. Maybe slowly and imperceptibly and unnoticed, we just kind of drift away sometime. But all of us are guilty of the, of the sin of going from God to other gods. And we don't think anything about it. I mean, it's no big deal. But God says you go down to Kittim, which is as far as you can go west. And you go down to Kedar, as far as you can go east, and you see if you've seen anything that is comparable to this. There's nothing as bad as this, he said. And the amazing thing about it is that that's the easiest thing in the world to do. I mean, to get to cut ourselves loose from God and to go after other gods that are no gods is the easiest thing in the world to do. It's a lot easier not to read your Bible than it is to read it. It's a lot easier not to worship than it is to worship. It's a lot easier not to pray than it is to pray. The hymn writer puts it like this, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's the tendency of us all to do this sin that astounds heaven. Now I want to ask a question this morning. Why is it that this sin that he describes, of which we all feel a certain indictment, is such a terrible sin that it ought to bring up heaven's shart and cause their hair to stand on end? Of all the things that heaven has seen, nothing is, wor- is, is as bad as this. Why is that so bad? Well, first of all, because of the people who do it. Notice that he says, my people. And he emphasizes that over and over. These are my people. He's not talking about some pagan. He's not talking about some godless person who's never claimed to know God at all. He's talking about God's people. He's talking about you and me, my people. Now, it probably is surprising to some of us that God still has a people. I mean, if these people were our people, we would have washed our hands of them a long time ago, but not God. My people, he claims. These are the people that have experienced my blessings. They've sat at my table. They've tested of the, tasted of the heavenly gift. They've enjoyed my abundance. This is what makes this so bad. These are God's people who are doing this. Now, you couldn't tell by looking. Sometimes God's people bear no resemblance to God's people. I mean, sometimes you can't tell by looking. But there's never been a time when God has refused to call as His. The 15th chapter of the book of Luke contains what is called the greatest short story ever written. It's the most recognizable parable Jesus ever taught. It's about the prodigal son. Now there came a moment in his life when he denied for himself that he was a son of his father. He said, I'm not even worthy to be called a son. And there was a time when his own brother disowned him. His brother went into his father and didn't say, my brother. He said, your son. He disowned him. But there never was a time when his father did. And so when he made overtures to come back home, the father claiming him said, my son which was lost is found. My son, which was dead, is alive. 
This is the tragedy of this thing. This is God's people who are doing this. And this is the pattern of their life. Now, when you look at this in the case it's in in the Hebrew, it, it suggests that this is no isolated incident. This is no one-time thing. This is the pattern of their life. The pattern of God's people is not to worship Him, but to, to fail, reject worshiping Him. That's the pattern. That's the tragedy. And what he's doing is what the old-time preacher used to call preaching about backsliding. You remember that, don't you? You know, there used to be preachers talk about backsliding. How long has it been since you've heard that term? The truth of the matter is that God's people have always been a backsliding people. It's been the pattern of, of us all. And so God is always raising up prophets and still has to, to call His people back to Him. And that's what makes heaven's hair stand on end. And God spoke through Amos the prophet and said, I knew you in the wilderness. And we all know what that word know there means. It means an intimate knowledge. I knew you intimately. I knew you when you were nothing. I knew you when you were at your worst. I love you when nobody else would. I accepted you when nobody else would. I called you and chose you when everybody else rejected you. I knew you at your worst moment and I called you and loved you then. Now look what you've done. Do you understand the enormity of this crime? One of my seminary professors tells that one day he, he got a letter from one of his students who was on one of these trips to the Holy Land. Inside this letter was a card, one of these tourist cards that had a, little, had a little pebble on it, a little rock that was supposed to have come from Golgotha, from Calvary. You know how those things are, you know, you get over there if you've ever been over. The little old card had a little rock on it and it was supposed to come from Calvary. And he said he had a little note attached to it and this student said, I just wanted you to know that, I, that you were remembered at Calvary. Seminary professor said, that spoke to me. At the worst moment of my life, he did not reject me. At the worst time in my life at Calvary, he remembered me. God said, this is such a terrible thing because it's people who have experienced my blessing. Not only have experienced his blessing, but they have obtained his name. They bear his name. He's given us his name. And his reputation is bound up in our conduct so that whenever one rejects and rebels, it, it discredits him. That's the picture. How many times has somebody said to you or about somebody they didn't feel like was really exemplifying Christ? They'd say, well, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were a Christian. I thought he was a Christian. Let me tell you something. The world has a higher standard about how you should live as a Christian than you have for yourself. And Paul was lamenting this when he wrote the book of Romans. He said these Jews, because of their lifestyle, has blasphemed the name among, of God among the Gentiles. That's what makes this thing so bad. When you rebel, when you, get a, when you cut yourself off from God, it discredits Him. He's blasphemed. Second, it's such a terrible crime because of the sin itself. Now notice he says two things. It's a twofold sin. 
He said, they've forsaken me and they've turned to other gods. Notice what he calls himself in this text. He calls himself the fountain of living water. Now that word in the Hebrew, that phrase, fountain of living water, in the Hebrew means water that makes for life, water that gives life. He's saying, I'm the God who gives life. I'm the God of salvation. Some college students were asked their definition of life. The winning definition was to receive a valuable prize. These answers came. Life is a disease of which death is the only cure. Life is a joke that isn't funny. Life is the, is the sentence for the crime of being born. Life. God says, I'm the source of vita, life. I'm the God of salvation. And not only is He the God of salvation, He's the God of satisfaction. He's the fountain of living water. Now, this fountain in the Hebrew world was not, you know, one of these things that sits out in the front yard that spurts water up in the air, you know, some little guy with a fishing hook. <laughs> the fountain in, in this age was a reservoir, a huge reservoir that was fed by underground streams, and there was always a crisp, clear, cool drink of water. What he's saying is, I'm the God who, is, who satisfies. Now, here's the crime. They turn from the God of salvation and satisfaction to the God who is a substitute, and there always is a substitute. A poor one here. Now for you rookies, I need to tell you what a cistern is. I just feel like it's time now to, to tell you what a Most of you never heard of one, never seen one. Now a cistern was a man-made device or container to catch water, runoff from the house or whatever used mainly out in rural areas where they didn't have water supply and the water from underground, they couldn't get it from underground or it was not good, fit to drink. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you have ever been in a place where you had to rely on a cistern? Yeah, well, two, not bad. Yeah, all right, cistern. Now, when I uh, first church out of, the, out of college, we, we went out to this place and, and uh, they, a little old town didn't have a water supply and and the water was gypsum, so they, we had a cistern. It was actually a hole in the ground, like a well, plastered, you know, and we were uptown. We didn't, just, we didn't drink the water that ran off of the church building, although it was attached there in gutters. We were pretty, pretty sophisticated in uptown. They brought water out from Roby in a big old tank and poured it in there, and that's what the water we used. Now, I never did, I never found a person yet that, that said that the cistern was a was better than the water supply. I mean, it was a poor substitute at best. Let me tell you something. Are you hearing me? When you go away from God, you'll go to something, and it's always a poor substitute at best. And there is a principle that runs through life, and this principle is this, that no one can live in a vacuum. And there's no such thing as neutrality, not even in your mind. You've heard people say, what are you, you know, what are you thinking about? Oh, nothing. Well, that's not correct. He's thinking about something, even if it's in the subconscious. You go to bed at night with a problem and you just worried you, went to sleep, woke up, and the problem was solved. You know what happened? Your subconscious was working on that problem while you slept. There's no such thing as a vacuum. You don't have time for God. You'll find some other God because there is, there's always a substitute. And man has sought his life long 
to find some way to substitute for God, some way to fill this void in his life, something that will slake this thirst. And so he fills it with money. And the more he gets, the more he wants. And he fills it with sensuality, but every conquest makes him want another one. And he fills it with ambition. And it's like drinking salt water. And he tries to fill it with a desire for power, but every little bit of power he gets makes him jealous of the person who has more. For any time you try to slake your thirst, any time you try to fill this blank in your life, with conquest from the boardroom or the bedroom, all it does is stoke the fire within to an intenser heat. And it's the same feeling that the drug abuser has when he goes from amphetamines to marijuana to cocaine to crack to heroin, trying to find something that will douse the fire within him. You just can't do it. And so a person turns from God. He says, well, I want to be free. I don't want any gods. Not possible. He'll turn to a substitute, and it's always an inadequate and inferior one. Now I want to say three things about this substitution. Then I'm out of here. First of all, it's foolish to try to find a substitute for God. I never cease to be amazed at the ignorance and the blindness of men who think they can find something in this world that's better than God. Where are you going to look? I never cease to be amazed at the blindness of man, mankind, who thinks that somewhere in this world, in some corner, in some crack in this world, he'll find something better than God. Where do you look? What are you going to find that's better than God? Foolish. And so the 44th chapter of the book of Isaiah, he just talks about how incredulous is the idea. Listen to this. He says, does this make sense? That you would turn from a God who bears you, who carries you, to a God you have to carry? Does it make sense that you will turn from a God who lifts your burdens to gods that become burdens? Does that make sense? Does it make sense that you would turn from the God who created you to the God you have to create? Does that make sense? Let me ask you the question again. Where are you going to go to find somebody better than God? It's foolish, ignorant, stupid. Second, it's costly. It's costly. Now you take a pencil sometime and you circle the words hew out. And I want you to understand the language of that statement, hew out. Because what he's talking about is the labor that it takes to hew out of stone a cistern. Now here's the picture. You got this guy who has in the backyard a reservoir, a fountain, of water that's fed by an underground stream and all he's got to do is just take him a dipper and go out there and get him a drink. And in the front yard, this same guy is out there with primitive tools hewing out a cistern. Now cisterns in that day weren't containers like our day. They were literally 
chipped out of the rocks, and they were these huge saucer-like containers chipped out of the rocks to catch the runoff, and they cracked. Now get the picture. Is Is this crazy or what? Here's a man goes not to the backyard where there's a reservoir of water fed by an underground stream. He goes out in the front yard, doesn't have a jackhammer or a sledgehammer. He has a little primitive tool and he hews day after day. He hews out a cistern and all he gets for it is a broken back and a parched face and a calloused hand. Hear me now. What he's saying is this. You can turn from God's from God to God's. You can turn from the God who created you and who carries you to other gods, but you'll pay a high price to do it. It exacts a terrible price. I've had people say to me, and it's true, that it's hard to be a Christian. I know it is. Jesus said, you better count the cost before you decide to follow me. I know it's true, it's hard to be a Christian, but I'm here to tell you, it's hard not to be. It's harder not to be. And before you sit, when you sit down and count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, you better also sit down and count the cost of what it means not to follow Him. Because the Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard, and it is. And I remember what God said through the prophet Hosea, speaking of Israel's rebellion. I will hedge their way about with thorns. Now I may be speaking to someone here this morning who has forsaken the God of his father and the God of his youth. And he started down the road to the far country. Let me tell you this. You can take that path away from the father. But one day you'll come back. And on your way back, you'll come back scratched and bleeding because He'll hedge your way with thorns. He'll see to it. It's a costly thing. And it's a worthless thing. Now, there are a lot of things wrong with cisterns, I can tell you. And I'm here to talk to you today about something I know for sure. We had a cistern. Now, it'd be wonderful if the only thing the cistern caught was water, but it didn't. I mean, a lot more at the bottom of that cistern than water, I'll tell you. And uh, so, so one time we, 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 uh, we, we ran out of water. We had a baptizing, and so always when we'd have a baptizing, we'd be without water the next day. So we, we decided we'd just get a guy to come and clean it while, he was, while, while it was dry before we could, you know, got more water. And, what he found in the bottom of that cistern will make, would make you, well, frogs and you know, tadpoles and grind. And, and, uh, and the guy called me out. He said, Preacher, come out here and look. I want you to see what you've been drinking here. You know, I wish I hadn't looked. <laughs> what you don't know won't hurt you. And I looked down in there and I saw those old frogs and tadpoles and grind and slime. And I thought, man, I'm drinking over that. Water off its, you know, sits over that. That was before the invention of germs, by the way. We made it, aren't we? Now, that's a terrible thing about cisterns. That's not the worst thing about cisterns. Are you hearing me? The worst thing about a cistern is that it's always dry when you need it the most. 
It's always empty when you're thirsty. And so a drought comes, and some of you are going through that time in your own life now. A drought comes, and times come that are difficult, and crises come that beat you down, and you go to water. You go to your gods, you go to their well. It's always dry when you need it the most. And Isaiah said, you got this God who has ears, but he can't hear. And you got these gods that have lips but can't talk. And you got these gods that have hands that can't help. And you got these gods that have feet but can't walk, which means that you're always in a place where you need them, but they can't get there to help you. For the great tragedy of going from the God who created you to the gods you create is that when you need them the most, they're not there. And as I've sat with you riveted to the television, I noticed the other day these guys loading these bombs on the bottom of those F-15s. And they were, wrote, and they were writing little messages to Hussein. On one of them they wrote, Hussein, if Allah doesn't answer, ask for Jesus. And I read from the Dallas Morning News, one boy a long way from home, sitting in the desert waiting for his time, said, God is closer to me now than ever before, and I no longer have any doubts about God. For I'm here to tell you that when you come to the deserts of your life and you need Him, you won't come to an empty well. The sin that makes heaven's hair stand on end is the sin of a man or a woman who would turn away from God to God's. And there's nothing like that in the history of the world. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today that we'll not drift from God, but run to Him. We'll forsake the gods which are no gods for the God who is God. I pray this morning that the decision that we make in this place will be the decision that God longs for us to make. For I pray in the name of Christ Jesus for His sake. There are three invitations. An invitation for you this morning, come to the living water. Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come to me. For the first time in your life, come to Jesus. Accept him. Surrender your life to him. Trust him. Maybe you need to come this morning in obedience to God's will and joining the church. Replace your life totally and under His Lordship, about which the choir sang so beautifully. 
you just need to come back to the Father, to the God of gods. Would you do it while we stand?